welcome to episode 148, again, of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, I'm having some deja vu here. I was going to say the exact same thing. That was my opening line. Thanks for stealing that. Sorry. I feel like we've done this episode before. Well, in some ways we have, because at least that's what I called the last one when we started it. Yeah, this just goes to prove that we do no editing because (laughs) it will live on in perpetuity. Even though it's entirely possible for me to go back and edit it out, I'm just going to leave it. We could. We just don't care. We just don't. So let's get into some affirmations and denials today. Let's just jump right at it. Okay. I love this. You want me to start? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead? So one of the things I like about our affirmations and denials section is I think we try to be Renaissance men in the sense that we're recommending all kinds of things, literature, technology. So I feel like it's incumbent upon me to always bring out Mm. the music affirmations. So I've got two more music affirmations this week and one that's even for you, Tony. Oh, man. Nice. Get ready. It's going to be awesome. So the first one I'm affirming with is a band called My Epic. It's They produced another great, it's just a Christian rock album. But if you've never listened to these guys, you should check them out. One, because they're on Face Down Records. And anytime I get to promote a small Christian label, I want to do that. So go check out Face Down Records. And this album entitled Violence by My Epic is hauntingly beautiful. It's really lovely. The music is on point. And the lead singer, whose name is Aaron Stone, has one of those really incredible, unique and distinct voices. Most of the time when people say unique and distinct when it comes to voices, it means it's bad, but not in this case. It's really phenomenal. So go check out them. The second thing that I'm referring with in terms of music this week is I want everybody to go to their Spotify lists, go to their iTunes account, go, if you're still downloading music online, I know you're out there, go to your files and throw out all of your Hillsong and then replace it with a group called City Alight, one word, City Alight. They just put out a new album called Yet Not I, and this is just great, amazing contemporary worship. So it's all of the great melodic fun stuff that you've come to enjoy from Hillsong without any of the sketchy theology. So it can be just a quick replacement and you'll be much the better for it. Nice. Um, Little known fact, I tried your last music recommendation and I lasted less than a second, I think. (laughs) So I I have the cheap version of Spotify where you can get, you can drill down to like an artist, but then it's just like shuffle of an album. Right. And it was the song called, I think it was called Response. Does that sound like a song? And it was literally like the first measure was just like that, just like that, like that scream. (laughs) And I like, I couldn't turn it off fast enough. And then, so my car does this thing when I get back into it and my phone reconnects to Bluetooth. It tries to pick up where you left off, but it doesn't always pick the right program. So it jumped into Spotify and picked up the same song without me expecting it. And I almost crashed my car because I was expecting to hear like James White jump on at three times speed. And it was just screaming at me, literally screaming at me. It was as if the Lord himself had put together that list playlist for you. Maybe. I mean, I technically that's true, I suppose. Yeah, that's I mean, actually like, correct. Providence wise. Well, you bring up a great point, And that is I should have rated these in terms of what I would call like the yell meter. So for that album by my epic, if zero is it's all melodic and there's no yelling and 10 is it's just yelling. You're not getting any melodies. 
this would score a one or 0.5. So you're pretty safe with that. And of course, the Yet Not I album by City of Light, that's just straight up zero. I don't think you're going to find any yelling in there whatsoever. Good, good. I, I like I like singing and not yelling. <laughs> I can understand it's, that there's a talent and there's a there's an artistry to the way those people yell, but I just can't get my ear to appreciate that sound. That's okay. In some ways, it's an acquired taste. I don't know that a lot of people just come right into it and they're like, wow, this is fantastic. Yeah. There is, it's just a different type of artistry. That's all it is. What's true for me is that, so this, the, on this morning, this Lord's Day, just like every other Lord's Day where I am playing as part of the music through worship at our church, I get up early. I like try to, if I can get some time in the scriptures, that's what I want to do. But as I'm getting ready, always, always, and on the way there, actually, I'm always playing like hard music, which for some reason like blows people's minds. Cause I'm always like, I need some, I want something like to get pumped up. Like we're, this is the Lord's day. Like we're about to go worship and worship hard. And so it's just funny that like, I'll literally pull into the parking lot and sometimes my windows are down and the music is just like cranking because I'm just jamming out. And then the next thing I'm going to play is like some Chris Tomlin song. So it's just a great, <laughs> nice, great coming together for me. Yeah. That, that's the only way to get pumped up is like some, some great music like that. So, so yeah. enough for music. We've covered that area. What do you got in terms of affirmations? So I think my affirmation is probably as far away from yours as it can get is, have you ever seen the movie You've Got Mail? Yes. So for whatever reason, Ashley decided to watch this movie. I guess she says it's a fall movie. Like she really loves the fall. You know this. And so because the movie takes place at fall, she likes to watch it when she thinks about fall. And it's been okay. kind of like brisk and like fall like weather up here. The temperatures are down. And so I'm watching this movie and it's really like interesting how prescient the movie is because the very first lines of the movie are this guy like basically saying like, you think that computer is your friend, but really this is going to change our entire life and the way that we think about everything is this advent of electronic mail. So like, it's really like ahead of its time, but then in other ways, and this movie came out like 20 years ago. So spoiler alert, I guess, but in other ways it's very not ahead of the time. So like the whole premise of the movie or one of the premises is like Tom Hanks is the owner of like a big box bookstore. And Meg Ryan is like the owner of a small town bookstore and the big box, like the big, the big conflict that these two will they won't they couple have is that his business is going to put her business out of business. And it's funny because if you were to take that and like move it forward, then it would be like the owner of like a Barnes and Noble would be Meg Ryan's character and Tom Hanks would be like a CEO at Amazon. So like right. in some ways it's so on point and so prescient in other ways, it's like really dated. So I'm affirming that movie just for the sake of the weird nostalgia of like hearing a modem sound and like like <laughs> there's these scenes where like he sits down and he's got to like log into America online and like it took like 15 seconds so it's way not realistic but he like sits down logs into America online and there's this whole scene where he's just like sitting there listening to the the modem sound waiting for it to load up. So I guess this is kind of like your affirmation in that the modem sounds like this music that you like. What? <laughs> hey, you, hey, I'm serious. Like, it's like weird screaming noises, <laughs> sort of modem? melodic, but weird screaming noises. I guess so. It's more. Yeah, that's a strange. It's more like what's that instrument? Um, oh, man. Or I can think the, of the theremin. theremin. Yeah, the theremin. Yeah, that's it's more like that. I would say. 
Yeah, it's like strange. Cut to a bunch of people listening to this now who don't even know what a modem, modem sounds like. I know. I'll have to. I'll have to put some sounds in at the end of the episode. Yeah, that's. I don't a even know where I'm going to find forget. them. Uh, yeah, that's something you would just have to straight up Google and just pull down yeah. an audio file from somebody who's recreated it or recorded it. But yeah, the other thing that I thought while I was watching this movie is that you could take the exact same premise of the movie and just tweak a few little things and all of a sudden you've got a really interesting like stalker thriller movie where like the guy meets the girl and like he's obsessed with her because he's met her online so he knows all this stuff about her but she doesn't know that so it'd be a really interesting way to do it i'm sure somebody has done like a you know like where they take the trailer for a movie that's a romantic comedy and they change the music and recut it so now it's like a horror movie if you haven't done that, if someone hasn't done that, somebody needs to do that with this movie. They're always also also close, aren't they? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's really no difference between those two premises. And when you think about it, this is a unique movie in the sense that because of when it took place, I mean, this was basically like giant marketing for Yahoo. I mean, the whole thing was built around that. You've got mail. Like that was just, yeah. just yeah. that soundbite. I know the whole thing. It, it's weird. That in Starbucks. There's a lot of Starbucks yes, in that movie. There is. So it was like the weirdest product placement ever. Yeah. It wasn't like there wasn't a equivalent with like Juno. Yeah. No, there wasn't. Which still exists, by the way. And and I still know people. Uh, I'll keep them nameless to protect their identities. But that actually pay for Juno Mail. Why? I mean, I guess maybe <laughs> if you have like that really epic like matt at juno.com or something really like ground floor like that maybe but i don't understand why you would do anything like that it boggles the mind yeah i would love if i could find a way to have a geocities website that'd be pretty sweet that actually would be pretty cool can we make that happen for our website yeah it'd be like reformbrotherhood.geocities.com slash purple lizard 176 slash earthbound Purple Lizard. Purple Lizzle 176. I love it. How about you, Jesse? What are you denying now? So this is somewhat of a semi-serious denial, and it's probably going to blossom into a full-blown rant. But nonetheless, I'm really kind of speaking first to myself, and that is I'm denying against this attitude that I see in a lot of Christians, or at least a lot of Christians recently, of this normative negative attitude. So this kind of like deprecating sensibility about things. And this I see especially in those who are privileged, but I would say even like in our culture, those who are overprivileged. It's just that there are a lot of Christians I've seen recently, and we all do this and we all need to stop, where our normative, our default mode when we're talking about something is, even if it's a blessing, is to complain about it. That's the first place we go. And I was just thinking recently in my own behavior, how detrimental this is, how like if we are really Christians who believe first in the sovereignty of God and second in, in that sovereignty, there is the full expression of his love. In fact, it's made manifest in that sovereignty. Then that of course means anytime we encounter any circumstance, any situation in our lives, even if it's not agreeable to us, that we know that if we have a good father, then the cup that he's giving us to drink is never going to contain poison. And so we just need to be upbeat. Like, I think we just need to be more optimistic, which actually this is going to come into what we're talking about a little bit tonight. But we just need to be more optimistic and we need to be less whining and complaining because especially it seems like a lot of times the things that we're whining and complaining about are when something isn't ideal for me or ideal for us. And that's a bad reason to be negative. So I want to be more optimistic 
I want to be more optimistic in the gospel, and I want to be more centered in what it means to understand that God is sovereign. So that whether that's in family relations or in experiences at work, wherever it is, my first response isn't to be negative about something or to complain, but to actually be joyful in it and to present that joyfulness outwardly so that I'm not known as like the whiner, but yeah. as the one that even in difficult circumstances is able to have a testimony, even if the testimony isn't clear in that moment, that the reason why I'm not freaking out or being negative is because the gospel is within me. Yeah. I feel like um, anything that I deny next is just going to make me look and sound terrible now. Because essentially you're like, I'm denying complainers. What do you have to complain about, Tony? It was kind of like a Jesus juke move I there, totally should have let you go. F- I should have gone first. Yeah, I did flip that on you in a way that is unfortunate. <laughs> This is more, like I said, about it, it's, this is not like the, there's plenty of things like when you're in the company of good brothers and sisters where you can be, you know, complain about something because it, it bothers you or speak about it in a kind of a righteous way. This is more like just having a consistently negative attitude where you must come across people where even Christians, your beloved brothers and sisters who, you know, like when you ask them about something or how things are going, even with all the blessings in their life, even if everything for all intents and purposes compared to almost anybody else is they're living the dream. There's always yeah. just something negative. And you want to be like, why can't we just rejoice in yeah, what I we do have? Know people like that for sure. Why do we first have to go to why this thing is horribly awful? Even when it, what by awful, I mean, it's just inconvenient for me or it's yeah. not the ideal situation. So it's more yeah. like that. Like definitely the whole point of us doing these denial things, of course, is to speak against things that we think are overrated or that, you know, we do have some issue with. And so that's totally legitimate. This is more like the petty... Eorism, if that yeah. makes sense, that kind I, of attitude. I love that term. Did we just make up a new term? I'm sure somebody's used that before, but it's definitely like the oh bother, like everything is just yeah. off. When you would be like, I thought you had a great week, be like, oh well, yeah, but this yeah. horrible thing happened. You'd be like, that's really not that bad. And yeah, like again, we're we're Christian people. Like we should be. I expect that from unbelievers, but especially I think in our environments in the workplaces, I think part of like the strength of the Christian testimony is that it doesn't have that default negative attitude. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a good word. That's what I got. So now that I've totally set you up and run railroaded <laughs> you on this, what, what do you want to complain about? Just, you know, lay it all out there. What little thing is bothering you that you want to get negative on? Well, I, I really, now I really do feel like I'm just going to get raked over on this. Um, my denial was a lack of time. So like, that's fair. Now I'm like, oh, woe is me. I don't have enough time. <laughs> I'm Stop like, it. There are people who have to work like 20 hours just to get by. And I'm like <laughs> being able to chill out on a Sunday and record a podcast. But anyway, like my, my denial is a lack of time. And there's a theological component to this, right? Like we have to work to get this is actually something my mom said on the phone with me just a little while ago is is every everyone has to make a decision between whether you have money or you have time. Like you can make more time by That's working true. less, but you're going to have less money or you can make more money, but it's going to take more time. And it got me thinking about the fact that like in the world that we live in, that's actually the result of the fall. Like Adam in the garden prior to the fall, he was able to work an appropriate amount of time, derive satisfaction from his work and the ground yielded its crop willingly to him. And then after the fall, like he has to eke out this living and and everything he does has to like be dedicated to like just surviving. So for me, like, I look at my week and last week I had this affirmation about this time management software, which is a blessing and it's nice, but it's also showing me like how much more I have to do 
than time I have to do it because there's always things that come up on the end of the day list of like, you didn't complete this task. Do you want to push it off to tomorrow? And it's like that list just keeps growing and growing and growing. So I guess like I'm trying really hard not to be a whiner and I would have hopefully would have not been being a whiner before your effort or your denial. But it feels like, um, Maybe the maybe the positive element of this is that we really have to be good at learning where to prioritize. So like we have to learn to say, like, I'm not going to play this video game or I'm not going to go see this movie or I'm not going to read this book because I need to dedicate this time to reading that book or to doing this thing or that thing. So I would love it if there was this unlimited resource of time, but there's not. And I guess that's my denial is that we are not I'm personally not good at prioritizing my time all the time. So, so there's that. You just totally threw me off. I was all ready to go. <laughs> I was going to be funny. It was going to be it was going to be an interesting denial. I'm sorry. It's okay. I've done it to I'm you too sorry. before. No, but that's a, actually I think that's a really fair denial because again, and you're not you're not a negative Nelly. So, it, this is more just talking about something that is yeah. an issue and you're absolutely right. I wish I can't think of any off the top of my head. Maybe you actually have some, but I do recommend for anybody that's wanting to get a little bit firmer understanding of their own time management to install one of those apps that actually yeah. tracks what you do. Because generally those are the types of things that this is the same with like money. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So yeah. it is probably worthwhile because it either scare the crap out of you or you'd be like, oh, this is basically what I thought. And then you're no yeah. worse off than if you hadn't installed it. And I think that one of the best pieces of advice that I like what your mother said there a lot, because that's absolutely true. And that's that, that certainly is a result of the fall is pursuing this idea where we're going after our calling and not our potential. And that's yeah. really difficult in our day and age because there's so many things yep. we want to do. Like we have hobbies, we have interests. I want to do a million things. A million things excite me, but there's not a million things I'm called to. But discerning what that is takes a fair amount of work with the Lord and in kind of self-assessment to see where it is that you're being called to. And then kind of going after that with reckless abandon and then everything else will kind of fall by the wayside and i think there'll be a lot more fruit yeah yeah i mean there are certain things in your life that are so important that you make time for it and it's kind of like there's these other things in your life that are important enough that you should make time for them but they're not so pressing that you have to make time for them yes like you make time to eat every day you make time to take a shower every day you make time to spend with your loved ones because those things are important and they just they they are such a priority that they press into it. And I think that we need to be able to look at other things that don't feel like they rise to those level and give them that sense of urgency. And I don't yes. think we always do that very well. No, that's, and that's unfortunately not something like any kind of great app will help you with. That's the kind right. of thing we actually have to carve out some time yeah. and start doing some assessment. And I think that's worthwhile. Test yourself, see what's going on. Yeah, because you still have to tell the app what a priority is. And if you yeah, don't exactly. tell it, if you don't prioritize the things that need to be prioritized, it's just going to it's going to put something else in that spot. Which incidentally, before we, we transition, I'm wondering for your thoughts on this. I think because what's interesting is because of the fall and how it has affected our time and the scarcity of resources, time being one of those things. What's interesting is I think so often when God pulls us into the desert, when he stresses us with that resource, it really is to help us by his power refine what our calling and what our priorities should be. So yeah. it's interesting that as a result of the fall, we feel on one end this, I would love to do everything and there's just not enough time, or I have so many tasks and I can't get them all done. And then on the other side of that spectrum, here we have God actually bringing, forcing stress into that situation, even more so than the time itself, yeah. to get us to understand what is the priority. Yeah, that's a good insight. Speaking of priorities, we should probably get to our topic. <laughs> Boom, bazinga. 
How do you like that Roasted. transition? <laughs> that was that was so good. That was actually really good. I'm not gonna lie. That was better than anything I could have come up with. That because what I had was the awkward silence that preceded your comment. Yeah. So we're good at the awkward silence, though. It's kind of our trademark. Yeah. Listen, nobody but you and I can really get after some hard. I'm talking hard awkward silence. <laughs> happening right now it is happening right now <laughs> so, so we're in the final episode right of this series that we've yeah. been talking about on eschatology and what i've loved about this is talking about this is great because it's complicated and controversial so it's right up our alley this is the kind of thing we love to embark on and i'm sure it's not the last time we'll talk about this so if anybody's listening and thinking you did not get to the thing that i wanted to hear then just give us a call and drop a voicemail on our laps and we'll go back to that topic. Yep. But I think part of what we've been trying to do, it seems like to me, is, is give some thoughtful consideration to eschatology with respect to some key terminology that we've talked about and some overview of like the various viewpoints that related biblical themes. And in that vein, one of the things that must be included in looking at the end times is we have to evaluate in light of those key passages of Scripture that bear on the millennial age. So that's like Daniel 9, uh, Matthew 24, Romans 11, Revelation 20. And so that kind of is somewhat of a precursor to what we're talking about to write tonight, right? Because we've got, yep. we're getting into this millennium. What does it mean? And so let me throw out, like, this is the way I generally think about it. This is my, like, little cheat rubric, my hack for thinking about these positions. So as far as I understand this, we've got three basic positions regarding the timing of the coming of Christ. So premillennialism, which we talked about a little bit, teaches that Christ returns before the end of history to inaugurate an earthly kingdom of a thousand years. Amillennialism, which we'll speak about in just a couple minutes, denies, and that's kind of a pejorative term, but denies an earthly kingdom age and says that the coming of Christ is the end of history. And then post-millennialism agrees with amillennialism that the coming of Christ ends history, but it also agrees with premillennialism that there will be a kingdom of God on earth in time. So that's the way right. I think about those two, pre, amill, post. Yeah, and you know, even breaking it down into two, two categories, or three categories, I mean, is already a little bit more bifurcated than reality. So if you go back like maybe 150 years, maybe 200 years, the, the, um, the position now known as amillennialism was called postmillennialism. And there wasn't a huge representation of what we now call postmillennialism, although it was present in some areas of the church. So even distinguishing uh, between amillennialism and postmillennialism too sharply is already kind of a a hermeneutical or heuristic mistake. So that's important to remember. And and before we get started, um, we didn't plan this because we don't plan much of anything. But um, on the New Geneva podcast, uh, which is a great show if you haven't heard of it yet, um, our Scott Clark was just on. He did a two-part episode or two-part series on uh, reformed amillennialism. That's it's it's excellent. Just like everything else that R. Scott Clark does, it's technical. It's good history. It's good theology. So go check that out. And then also, Two Thieves did uh, a series on uh, eschatology that covers these positions really well. Very good. And so That's... I think I think you're right that 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 general rubric of all right, Christ comes before a literal earthly kingdom is premillennialism. Christ comes back after a literal earthly kingdom that may or may not be a thousand years. It's usually not conceived of as an actual thousand years, but there is a literal earthly kingdom. So the, the figurative element of, um, 
of the millennium is the length, not the existence. Where amillennialism really is, it, the whole thing is kind of figurative, right? The millennium represents not an earthly rule, but it represents uh, Christ's rule in heaven with the saints, and it's it's longer than a millennium. Um, and they only knew that it was longer than a millennium once they reached more than a millennium. So I think that basic rubric is really good. Have you ever heard that bad joke about post-mill, ah-mill? Have you heard that before? I've heard it in reference to post-trib, uh, pre-trib rapture, but I'm sure it's the same joke. Okay, it might be. And actually, now that I just said that, there's probably a million bad jokes. Very. But the joke goes it, yeah. something like this, like, oh, I'm not post-mill or ah-mill, I'm pan-mill. Yeah. You heard that? Yeah, I've heard... <laughs> I've heard it in reference to the rapture in circles where like the question isn't where it's just assumed you're pre-mill, but the real question is when's the rapture? It's, yes. it's pan rapture or pan, pan trib. Uh, so it, it'll all pan out in the end. Yeah. Super clever. But yeah. that's actually, I'm glad you brought it up that way in terms of what are the questions that are really being asked? Because I think even with this difference in talking tonight about post-mill and amill, for me, I think you can encapsulate that debate in just two questions. And the first would be, will the end time events of Christ's return, the resurrection and the judgment synchronize? Will they all happen at the same time? And so like both the amillennials and the postmillennials are going to say yes, but for different right. reasons. And then, but the second question I think is equally important. And this is really interesting. This gets in the postmill piece if we want to go there first. And that is question two, will the church age, and that could be identical with or inclusive of the millennial kingdom, Will that be a time of evident prosperity for the gospel on earth with the church, like achieving some kind of worldwide growth and influence that Christianity has not yet seen before? That is like the, I think the critical question, right? Because to that question, both the premillennialist and the amillennialist answer is no. And I presume because I'm going to rely on you because you are the social media expert here. I assume this is where the hashtag postmail comes in all the time. Yeah, the hash, hashtag that dat postmill dat postmill that's right dat yeah postmill yeah. so it and this is this is where when I say that postmillennialism as we talk about it now is a relatively new and relatively rare um, thing on in the reformed world it's not new in the sense that there's always been those in the church and this it's not even like reformed theology there have always been those in the church who believed that the millennial kingdom was going to be this era of prosperity where the gospel was going to go forth. I mean, we can go all the way back to like Eusebius of of Caesarea, uh, Eusebius of Nicodemia, Caesarea, Eusebius of Caesarea, who basically wrote this panegyric, which is like this tribute to Constantine, who, and they, the, a lot of people during that era when the church was growing and thriving and the state was kind of supporting the church believed that that was the beginning of the millennial kingdom and that this was the beginning of this golden age where Christ, Christianity becomes the dominant religion, the gospel goes forth, and basically the whole world is converted. So it's right. not new in that it never existed. But what is a little bit new about it in reform circles is sort of the emphasis on this sort of like golden era or like this, this defined period of time where like the world becomes Christianized. And so there's, there's that, which is kind of the modern post-mill view. And then there's what used to be called post-millennialism, which just meant the millennium was everything from the resurrection till the return of Christ. That was the millennium. Right. So by definition, Christ returns after the millennium. So that was what was called post-millennialism was this idea that the millennium is this period of time Uh, where Christ is ruling in heaven. So we have to be careful when we use the term, because if you go back to, you know, terms prior to maybe like this 1800s 
and look at and you see post-millennialism, they're not talking about the same thing necessarily that that is talked about now with like hashtag that post mill. So modern post-millennialism is really, really associated with this earthly victory for the gospel where the world be, the world becomes Christianized. It's a little bit pejorative and it's not entirely accurate to say it's like a golden age for the church. But the key is that the the, the world does become Christianized and some do paint that in political light that that actually like the church becomes right. the dominant political force in the world. Yes. But most actually just paint it as the the world becomes predominantly a Christian place, even though there will always be those until the very end who reject Christ. For the most part, most people become Christians under this view, where amillennialism as it stands now you know, there's there's optimistic forms of amillennialism, which are basically that older version of postmillennialism, which would say like, yeah, the gospel goes forth and the church continues to gain ground and then Christ comes back, but doesn't have that same sort of like flavor of the world becomes Christianized, just that the gospel goes forth. And then there's more pessimistic versions of amillennialism, which is more what you're describing. And that shares a lot in common with premillennialism in terms of like, kind of the world going to hell in a handbasket to borrow kind of a colloquial phrase. So right. there's those distinctions that most people don't even realize are there. Yeah. And that's why I think this is really helpful to speak about because I agree with you. There is a difference in the use of terms, like all terms, especially through time, but in the way that we're kind of speaking about it, at least in a contemporary fashion post, not just after, but post in this special sense of like a unique binding of Satan and then a unique manifestation. And we are, I'm glad the way you said it, we're speaking of an actual rule of the church in the world, right. either through the conversion of multitudes beyond anything we've seen yet, or through the permeating influence of the church or people of God right. displayed on a scale never yet achieved. But we're talking about something more than just the spiritual kingdom. We're talking about an outward and very visible manifestation. And it would all be Holy Spirit wrought in theory, but it would be social, governmental, and it would be technical progress within the human race that would be unparalleled throughout the course of history. Yeah. And so one of the things actually I think that is like a, a can I call this strength? Uh, maybe it's better to say, this is one of the things that I admire about the post-millennial view. And this goes back to my denial is that there is some strength in the rhetorical stress and optimism regarding the kingdom of God and its, right. and its ability to transform the nations of the earth before Christ returns. So I think like post-millenarians like extend the kingdom of God beyond the spiritual realm of just word and sacrament to the transformation of, of culture. And that's a point with which I would disagree. I don't find that. And we'll talk about this. I think there's a little bit, I think of scriptural dissonance there, but I think that like the prevailing evangelical mindset today is like dispensationally affected. So as a result of that, it's fundamentally pessimistic regarding the progress of contemporary history. Right. Yeah. And I get that things are dramatic and things are bad. And there's, there's a lot that's happening in our society and culture that is tragic and filled with sin. And, and why wouldn't it be? Because we are people that are sinful. And yet at the same time, we, again, we have that tendency to be so negative in our mindset that we push aside the work that God is doing. But the difference here is that in postmillennialism, there's generally the belief that Jesus returns to, I'm going to say it this way. So get ready for like the pejorative siren. Jesus returns to a saved earth. Right. He does not return to save the earth. Right. Yeah, they would never use that language, but I, I agree with you that logically that I think that's where it ends up. Right. right. That's why it's pejorative. And they would say, <laughs> I mean, they would, even if those who might agree with that sentiment, that Jesus returns to a kingdom that's basically been prepared for him, they would still affirm that he's the one that prepared that kingdom for himself through the power and the working of the spirit and the spread of the gospel. But I think you're right that that is the major difference is that 
you know, there, we, we may do a series on this. I've had some people as we've done these series, um, as this is kind of our second theology series who've talked about like, you should do one on like the difference between reform, like two kingdoms theology and kind of like that church state access that we, I don't think we've really touched on much at all, but but amillennialism and post-millennialism, their real major difference um, is what is the role of the church in the world and how does it function and what's, what's the goal. So for the amillennialist, Christ's kingdom is already here. Right. It's already here in the sense that Christ is reigning and ruling over uh, all of creation. Right. All heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has already been given to Jesus. But he exercises that in a spiritual sense now, even as in the future, he will exercise it in a physical sense. And what I mean by that is that he rules spiritually in heaven. And so we pray thy kingdom come on earth as it, as it is in heaven, which implies it's not yet like that on earth. So that's the millennial argument is the, the role of the church in the world is to bring about the spiritual revival of all people. And no one would be stupid enough or silly enough to deny that the, the revival of people's spiritual lives has implications, temporal implications in the world, right? When a, a, a whole town or a whole region or a whole country comes to Christ, that's going to change the way that those laws are shaped. It's going to change the way the society works. So so optimistic amillennialists would say, yeah, if we preach the gospel, then then we're going to see like a revivalization of morals in the world. So that's good. Where post-millennialists go, though, is they tend to deny, and this is where you have an intersection between post-millennialism and theonomy. And theonomy is the idea that the laws given to Israel, the civil laws given to Israel, play more than just a typological role, and they didn't pass away with the the, uh, economy of Israel. That they actually are still the standard of justice, and so we should shape our civil laws to conform to the laws given in the book of Leviticus primarily. Um, as closely as possible. So that would be things like advocating uh, death for adulterers or death right. for people who violate the Sabbath, like the the the, the death penalty for those who uh, rape people. And some of that's good. Like rape is terrible. Rape should be a civil or should be a, a capital punishment in my view. But they would advocate that not based on the general equity of the law, but based on uh, based on specific strict application of the Mosaic law to our modern context. So the post-millennial view tends to put the church and the state kind of in the same the same sphere. And so they deny the idea that two kingdoms theology, that there's a kingdom of kingdom of the world and a kingdom of heaven. And those two are basically separate until the return of Christ. That's the two kingdoms view. That's the amillennial view. And the post-millennialists typically or or predominantly would say, no, the church should not only be a prophetic voice in uh, the culture, but it should also in part fill that kingly role of Christ, right? The church sort of fills sort of, I hate the language of like being Jesus to people, but in a certain sense, the church is the ongoing presence and ministry of Jesus Christ in the world. Not in like the Roman Catholic sense where it's actually like the ongoing incarnation of Christ, but as his ambassadors in the world, the church plays a role. In the amillennial view, we play primarily a prophetic role where we we preach the gospel, we reveal the will of God for man's salvation by the word, and then the spirit calls people internally, where the, the post-millennial view tends to also want to exercise that kingly perspective of not only do we preach the gospel and exercise a spiritual authority in the world, but we also 
exercise in a certain sense, a temporal uh, kingly authority to, to restrain evil by power of the church, not just by the, the state doing that as God's ministers. And I know there's a lot of theonomists that are probably screaming straw man right now. So I'm happy to en engage questions and criticisms about that perspective. But as I see it, that's the main difference is that the theonomists or the post-millennial view, which are closely associated, at least in modern context, wants the state to be governing the world according to the spiritual principles of the Bible, right? which is, I think, a blurring of categories. I think so too. And it's exactly that kind of dominance, the sense that in this kingdom, the Christian worldview, laws, litigation, structure will become the dominant force that I think is actually the greatest weakness of this particular view, because I don't actually see that comporting with scriptural data. Right. So going like all the way back to like Genesis three, you know, we're told of the battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And there's reason to believe that that will continue as long as the then pronounced curses on man and women will last, which is basically until Christ returns. Right. So you have on, on this one side in the old Testament history, at least the seed of the woman was greatly outnumbered by the seed of Satan. Like that seemed very plain. And actually it even appears that way within national Israel. So the world and even Israel lay in complete and utter decay at the time of the first advent of Christ. And if you go and look at, you know, for example, Noah and his family, they were contrary to the prevailing evil in the period before the flood. And only Lot and possibly his family, you could argue, were contrary to the ubiquitous wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah prior to their fiery destruction. So all that to say, if you look at the Old Testament history, if that's any indication of the course during the Christian era, the true church of Jesus Christ will always be a remnant. There'll be an enclave within which even the professing church in the world exists. And this is why we talk about, of course, like the, the visible and the invisible church. But I think it's a major weakness is there's nothing in the grand arc of the scriptures that gives us any indication that there will always be anything but a remnant, even as we get into the eschatological categories. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely not wrong. And I, you know, I hadn't really intended for this to go this way, even though we don't like plan out too much. I still had some thoughts <laughs> yeah, about where we, mean? <laughs> where we were going to end up, but this, this access uh, or access of um, how the church interacts with the state, it really is ingrained in eschatology more than it is anything else. And that's why post-millennialists tend to get accused of having this over-realized eschatology because the, the, although, you know, the, um, the premillennial view or the, the dispensational view, one of the criticisms we levied against that is that the premillennial dispensationalist separates the kingdom of Christ as a spiritual kingdom and the seed of David, the, the kingdom of David, overly separates Christ's kingdom into two very distinct kingdoms, right? There's Christ's spiritual rule over all things, and then there's Christ's physical temporal rule for a thousand years over the earth that has an endpoint. And so that was our criticism there is that it, it overly distinguishes and separates those two kingdoms, which really are one kingdom. But the post-millennial view, in my perspective, overly fuses those two things and doesn't respect the fact, and this is where the, the famous phrase of the already not yet that all millennials love is Christ is already reigning and ruling spiritually. He's already the Lord of the universe. Everything already belongs to Christ. He's already bringing to fruition his plans. All those things that the post-millennialists um, kind of act like they're the only ones who believe that, at least the ones I've been engaged with, those things are already true. Right. But it's also clearly true 
when we have states like New York that are, are basically on the verge of legalizing like infanticide. We're not even talking about abortion, which is infanticide, but we're talking about a recognition and acknowledgement that it's okay to kill a baby who's already been born, who's outside of the womb, who very easily could just be adopted out or could be going to a foster care and not murdered. They're getting so close to actually justify just killing that baby, even though it's being born. I don't know how anyone can look at that and say, yeah, Christ, Christ is bringing about his temporal kingdom as well. And I, I'm an optimistic amillennialist, right? I'm, I'm looking at it and there are more Christians coming to faith now in history than there ever have been. Like the gospel has gone forth freely. The gospel is not really all that hindered in the grand scheme of things. And Satan appears to be bound and he's not deceiving the nations anymore. So I'm incredibly optimistic, but I think that that collapsing of the two kingdoms into one, it actually sort of paints this picture of Jesus being a really ineffective temporal ruler. And I don't really know exactly what to do with that. And again, I, I know that there are post-millennials who have good answers for this. I've never heard one that I found terribly compelling, but that that kind of collapsing of the two kingdoms into one is very concerning to me. Well, if you're post-mill, you at least have to contend with, well, then when does the millennium start? Right. If not now, then when? And that's always kind of like just a sliding scale. It always just kind of moves away from you because things are exactly like you're talking about. It seems things don't seem to be getting necessarily better, at least in terms of our ruling authorities. Right. And so we'd have to say, well, it hasn't started yet because that wouldn't be endemic of a situation in which Christ would be ruling temporally. So, I mean, that's probably as good as any place to like get in then to some of like the all-mill stuff because... I think you're right. Like sometimes, and here's why I think Amel is pejorative because it suggests sometimes that Amelianists either one, they don't believe in any millennium or that they simply ignore the first six verses of revelation 20, which speak of right. it. Right. So neither of those two statements are true. I think we've at least, at least proved that like indirectly with just this conversation. And I think some theologians have suggested like a better term would be like realized millennialism, but I, I don't really care. I just think the problem is what we're saying is actually what, what struck me in what you were saying was that we actually are believing that we can be optimistic because part of the, the millennium rule is Christ binding Satan in such a way that now the gospel is going forward through like the proliferation of technology and other sources in ways that are just without parallel, without comparison at any point in history. Yeah. And so we're saying, and I think we're both probably Amil on this, but we're saying that the millennium is a present reality, but it's centered in Christ's heavenly reign. It's not right. a future hope of Christ's rule on the earth after his return. And so there's stuff happening now. We have reason to be joyful, optimistic, and look forward in faith, knowing that Christ is in fact working now in a very real way, just not expressly in a temporal way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really common to apply kind of war analogies to eschatology. And I think there's some value in that. And so I, I think the amillennial view, it's not, and it's not even just, at least my understanding and my perspective, and I'm an amillennialist, it's not even just that Christ is ruling in heaven. And this is where the already comes in, but it's already present on earth as well, but it's present in the church and in the spiritual right, reign of Christ exactly. over the church. So it's kind of like, you know, when you talk about an invading, an invading force, um, you could talk about like when uh, America invaded um, Iraq to try to liberate Iraq after 9-11. Um, we won't get into like the political conversation about whether that was right or not. But there there was a certain point where, um, you know, the the American forces occupied Iraq. 
right? They, they were the dominant force. They existed. They were there. They had control of the region. And so you could say in a certain sense that they were the, they were the occupying ruling forces of that area. But that doesn't mean that there weren't also already still insurgencies and areas of that country that had not yet been claimed by the American forces. And so we can say in the amillennial view that Christ reigns in heaven supremely with no opposition, and he right. reigns on earth in the church, and the church is sort of that area of control, and control I know is a relative term, but that area of control that Christ has, that area of sovereignty that Christ has, even though that area of sovereignty is still in the midst of an area that he has not yet outwardly conquered yet. So that that to me, and, and the optimistic Amel view, which I consider myself an optimistic amillennialist, is that that sphere of influence will continue to expand. It'll have right. fits and starts and it will continue to expand. And But I don't think, and this is the difference, I don't think that the expansion of the relative expansion or retreat of the church or the, the Christian influence in the culture, I don't actually think that that's tied to the return of Christ. We're not preparing a kingdom for Christ with our, with our efforts on earth. The Bible doesn't seem to present that view that the, the church right. is responsible with preparing the earth for Christ's return. And that's the hallmark of the post-millennial view is that through the church, Christ is preparing himself a kingdom, but it's ultimately tied to whether the, to the church's expansion and Christianization of the, of the nations. And that's why I'm saying that I think I see history so far as perfectly in accord with that amillennial model. Right. And I don't see any adequate scriptural reason to expect a future divergence. So to exactly your point, this is what's unique about the amillennialist. He can say, or he does not have to say that there cannot in the future be some kind of fantastic victory for Christ on earth, even beyond any that we've experienced to date. But what he's saying is that scripture does not clearly prophesy such glorious or ironic right. times. Right. So if the scriptures do not clearly prophesy those times, then I think we need just to continue to abide by both the consolations and the warnings of the New Testament pertaining to our age, keep to our tasks, and leave that exact decree of righteousness obtained thereby in the hands of God. Yeah. And so th I think, I wish we had more time because... I, I think my personal conviction on this, and I don't know where you stand, is that a lot of this just has to just stems out of how Revelation 21 through 6 is interpreted. Yep. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with uh, the method of like progressive parallelism, where like the book of Revelation consists of like seven sections which are running parallel to each other. And each of those is depicting the church and the world from the time of Christ's coming to the time of his second coming. And if you read this or interpret it in such a way where it's like strictly linear, then you tend to get pigeonholed into the post mill view because it seems like certain things are happening logically, so to speak, or temporarily after one another. And I just don't believe that's like the proper way to, to look at Revelation 21 through six. So without getting into that, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I was super distracted by the dog barking outside my door, <laughs> but, but I, I think, um, I think you're right is, is that we have to understand carefully what that passage means. Um, and I just don't know that we've reflected well on it. Like the, the, the church has had so many different perspectives on it. Right. And, um, I do think that at times every view fails to take into account something from that perspective. Of course. Um, right. And I think that really is, you know, if I could kind of bring our whole eschatology series down to one point is, um, there are not a lot of topics in the scripture where God has not given us all the information. 
maybe not like a comprehensive, exhaustive amount of information, right? We're never going to be God, so we can never know theology the way that God does. That's the basic archetypal, archetypal distinction. But eschatology is one of those things in scripture. And I think the only thing in scripture where God has specifically told us, you're not going to get this all. Like, I'm not going to tell you everything. Some of this I'm retaining for my own secret knowledge. And so I think that whether you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist, you know, the, the joke, like it'll all pan out in the end. There's a certain level of truth to that, right? That, that God's going to, God's going to win, right? We, we know how the book ends. God, God wins. He brings all of those who are his into the fold. And we have to trust that that's the way it is. And I think that, um, eschatology is so much more than just revelation chapter 20 verses one through six. And I think even, even the distinction between post, uh, and premillennial tends to act as though that's the whole crux of the matter, right? Right. That's the whole crux of the matter is where in relation to these six verses is Jesus going to come back. And I think that the answer we have to say is, yeah, we can draw good conclusions, right? I'm confident that my view is correct or I wouldn't hold it. But I should probably hold this view a little bit looser than I hold something like the doctrine of the Trinity or right how on. salvation works by grace through faith. Like those things are much more clear in scripture. And I just think we have to be cautious about it. I agree. Well, let's do this. How about, cause again, how many times can we say in this podcast, we didn't plan for this and this is not where we intended it to go, even though we had no intentions to begin <laughs> with, but why don't we wrap up with some spiritual conferencing directly related to this whole series and talk a little bit about how that impacts us personally. And I'll start by saying, what I've been struck with as we've talked about all these things is just as you've already well stated that there are different views here that Christians need to be better at coming together on and talking about and keeping more open-handed stance on this stuff. Beyond that, what I realize unites all these is just the great immense mystery and full power of God. Because no matter which view you hold, there's no doubt that God is coming back with power and authority and judgment. Yeah. And that this is the kind of level of authority and influence and power that we just cannot conceive of. And, and so many times as I was thinking about these topics, I was just overwhelmed by, I have nothing to compare this to. The kind of undoing of the world, that kind of power is just so alien to me, so otherworldly. I cannot yeah. conceive of it. And the only thing I can do is just get on my knees and worship because this is the one that created us. And this is the one that in some ways will undo everything and set up this new heaven and new earth. But I was just been so struck by the sheer enormity of God and his power to affect any kind of change in any way that he desires. But the bottom line is the world is going to end. That, that sign is true. The world is coming to an end. That is a statement of fact writ large. And so the only question that we're left is left with is what are we going to do when that happens? Either when yeah. our lives end themselves, which is also a fact or whether if Jesus doesn't tarry, he returns. So I've just been wrestling and I, I think in some ways being broken under this enormous weight of the power of God and what that actually means. How yeah. about you? Yeah. I mean, I think I probably am coming down to the same basic kind of takeaway points is, you know, the, the, um, I'm not finding it right now, so I'm not going to try to recreate it from memory, but most of the parables that Jesus tell that have something to do with his return, right? The parable of the 10 virgins, that that's the one that comes to mind. The emphasis of the, of the parable 
is not about the timing of Jesus' return. It's about the prepare the relative preparedness of those awaiting his return. Right. Right. So so it, it's the issue with the the unwise virgins is not that they misunderstood the time of his return. Because nobody no none of the none of the ten virgins knew when the the bridegroom was returning. The the problem with the parable of the ten virgins, the, the unwise virgins, is that they were not ready. So I think for me what's been emphasized and this goes back to my denial, right? The time, the time issue is it's funny. <laughs> I was driving with Ashley the other day and we were making, I made some joke about the rapture. Uh, we saw there was one shoe on the side of the road and she was like, man, I always just feel anxious when I drive past this shoe. It's been there for like two weeks. And I said, yeah, it's like the shoe's been raptured. She's like, yeah. And I go, it's like one been, one's been taken and the other's been left behind. <laughs> and she kind of, she kind of chuckled, but, but there's, the rapture, I, I think that the rapture, I think we've been pretty clear. The idea of a pre-tribulation rapture where God takes away all the all the people of the church, I think it's kind of just superstitious nonsense, to be honest right. with you. Like, wah, wah. not like I'm ever pull my punches when it comes to this, but I just think it's silly. Like, I, I don't see it in scripture. It doesn't seem to comport with anything that we're told about how Christ's people suffer through tribulation. But all of that said, um, there's a real element that the dispensationalists get right, that it's important to be ready. Like, yes, not, not that it depends on our salvation. Um, but it's important to be ready because we do not want to have any shame before the Lord when he returns. And, and it, there's, there's a paradox in the Christian faith that at the same time, we can say that we're right before the Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we never have to fear that, but also God chastises us and disciplines us. And so the, uh, the, the fact is that Christ commands us to be ready for his return. He tells us to be watchful and he tells parables that paint those who are not ready for his return, who are not, uh, who are not ready to face the Lord at any moment, who are not capable of that, who are not eager to face the Lord, who are not making, making plans to eagerly and joyfully receive the Lord when he returns, mm -hmm. that that's not a good thing. So right. for me, as I've been thinking about this, right, the post-millennialists, and this is the one thing that I, I, I'll add that kind of goes further into the criticism world, any eschatological view that leaves you in a state where you can't say Jesus could return at any moment is a false eschatological view. Right. So the, the dispensational view is false because the rapture could happen at any moment, but Christ's ultimate return, we know that there's a seven year gap. Right. So, right. so we've got that seven years after that, that's contingent and the post-millennial view, um, the world is clearly not Christianized. It's not going to happen at any moment. This is a, a progress that will take quite a long time, I would think. So, so there's a certain sense that the post-millennialist view also can't be true because it means Christ can return at any moment. So a view that holds that Christ could return at any moment means that we should be ready and able and willing and joyfully receiving our King at any moment. And that means we better be uh, studying his word. We better be doing good to all, especially to those in the household of, of Christ. We better be making sure that we are taking care of fellow Christians, right? We don't want to be uh, confronted with the situation where Christ said that you did not do this to the least of these, my brothers. So all of this language in the scripture about being ready, it's not about being ready. Otherwise you won't be saved, but it's about our state of mind and our state of heart. As we await the Lord's return, we should be like the 10 virgins or the, the five virgins who stayed up in the night. They were 
were prepared. They bought extra supplies. They were ready for the bridegroom's appearing. So when he came, they didn't have to face the shame of not being ready. They were able to enjoy his return without fear and even enjoy the anticipation of his return without fear. All of that's important. And I think that's kind of what I've been learning as we go through this series. And that is a real preparedness, right? It's Boy Scout style confidence and peace. This is the kind of thing that, for instance, like led Horatio Spafford to pen that last verse of it as well. And let me just quote it because it's beautiful. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Yeah. So to be in that kind of position in place, like you said, I love that. This idea, a calledness, a clarion call to go out and to be prepared. And that goes back to what we were talking about even earlier, to pursue our calling and not just our potentiality, but to be serious about what the work that God has given us to do and to get after that very thing. And to also at the same time, do some testing to see whether yeah. or not we're in the faith, because this isn't a matter of, like you said, being saved. It, you know, and a recent example for me was when my wife went in for this first round of surgery, which is supposed to be easy outpatient procedure. And of course I trusted the Lord. We prayed for this procedure well up to the time she went under anesthesia. And yet because the circumstances changed so dramatically and because there were so many complications, what I found was that though I had faith in God, though I was trusting in him, I was not prepared to put my full weight on him. Yeah. And so sometimes it's not until that crisis comes to us that we see how lack the lack of preparedness that we have in our life. So this is a call for all of us. To this is that moment uh, to yeah. be about the Lord's business, like you said, and to be settling in our hearts what it means to receive with joy and to be ready for any moment that Jesus would return. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do this very often. We maybe have never done this actually, but, um, you know, we talk about how this show is a, a venue for us to sort of share the gospel and we don't do a lot of like actual evangelistic calls. So if somehow you have managed to stumble upon this podcast and you have uh, are not someone who can say that you trust Christ for your salvation, don't wait. Please don't wait because um, the Lord will return like a thief in the night. He right will on. come and he will claim those who are his own. And there won't be a seven year period for you to get your stuff together after that. Right. Christ is coming back once. And when he returns, he will slaughter all those who are his enemies. So the only hope that there is of survival is by trusting in the one who is Lord over all. So please do not delay because today is the day of salvation. Right. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So don't don't delay. Amen. And for those who are who know that they are loved and saved by God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, I would add to that. If there are those with whom you've been speaking the gospel to, it is okay and is absolutely appropriate at times to say, hey, what's holding you back here? Right. Just to be straight up and very blunt, say, I'm concerned. This is, I talked to you about this stuff, not because this is a matter of just polite conversation, but I sense there is an emergency here. What is holding you back? Because yeah. I think you and I both believe that God is going to save his elect by his power on his terms. And he's using his people very graciously in that process. And so yeah. it's okay to be very blunt with somebody and ask those, those types of questions and spur that dialogue on. So they sense from you that there is a real urgency here. This isn't just about let's debate good ideas for a while, but that we're actually concerned about your soul. And yeah. that's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. So Jesse, are we ready to reveal what our next series is? That's a great question. Do we have a dramatic reveal planned? 
I don't think we do. That we was a joke. I mean, we don't plan anything. <laughs> we don't plan anything. <laughs> Except apparently what series we're doing next. We do plan that. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So we're excited because we're going to do something that we haven't done before. It's a little bit scary because it's a, just a different thing. We're going to work through on the show the Book of Malachi. So we're going to we're going to try to take it in digestible chunks. We're going to try to um, be uh, clear and exegetical, but also we're going to try to be practical. Um, we're not pastors. This isn't a sermon. This isn't even like a Bible study. This is two guys who love to study the scripture and want to share what we've learned with those who have subscribed to our silly little podcast. But I'd encourage you to pick up the copy of the scriptures, take a look at it, read through Malachi a couple times. Um, there's lots of great resources that we'll be suggesting along the way, but I hope that this is a chance um, for us to get into a book that honestly, like it's a great book, but, but most people don't really give a lot of thought to it. Um, it's kind of like it gets tacked on at the end of your old Testament reading plan. And if you're lucky, you make it through it. And by the time you get to it, you're kind of like brain drained. So we're going to, we're going to devote a little bit more attention to it than uh, I've seen other places. Once again, all I can think of is bad jokes about this. Well, like, let's, ha let's have one. Like, who is the only Italian prophet in the Bible? <laughs> Malachi. Malachi! Malachi! <laughs> yes, that will be the last... No, it probably won't be the last time we make that joke, I'm sure. <laughs> no, we're going to get a lot of play out of that. There's plenty of room to run with that oh, still. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm resisting jumping into a really terrible Italian accent right now. So I'm sure we would offend somebody that whisper. <laughs> wow. We better end this now. We're going wait, off the rails. Wait, wait. Before I do, I got to ask this question. This, this came up this week and it's related to the Italian thing in the accent you just said, how do you say the name M A R I O Mario? And you're, you're yeah, that, some people say Mario. Yeah. That's, that's, I've always heard Mario when somebody was like, no, it's Mario. I was like, in what world, in what world is that? In Mar who people say Mario, it's a Mario. Nobody's saying that. Yeah. It's that's a me what... Mario. It's a yeah, me exactly. Mario. Mario. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I trust Nintendo. Yeah. I trust yeah. the Japanese company. The Japanese clearly know how to pronounce Italian words. <laughs> well, Jesse, well, I is... think yeah. we just flipped into our British, awkward British drama comedy mode. Oh man. We gotta, we gotta play that up sometime. The awkward British drama. Yeah. Um, are you closing it out or I'm after you, sir? Oh, uh, okay. Well, this has been <laughs> <laughs> the definitive series on eschatology. It's been great, Tony. I'm glad that we've done this and I'm looking forward to more great conversations in Malachi. <laughs> Let's do it until next time, Jesse honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.